morning. It's good to be here with you. Pleasure to be able to open up the Word of God with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is the chapter I have been assigned to deal with, and uh, we'll dive in. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 670 of those uh, black Bibles that are in the chairs before you. I, I did preach a, a message or brought something to us on a Wednesday night once on this particular chapter. So a little bit of it is the same. However, I, I covered the first half. So now I get to cover the second half as well. So I'm a little excited. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as you're, as you're turning there, um, we won't start out by reading it because we'll just dive right in. I just want to give a brief introduction. This man, his name is William Randolph Hearst. Um, According to a book by Lehman Strauss titled We Live Forever, on page 10 he talks about William Randolph Hearst a little bit. According to Life magazine, this man, he was an American newspaper publisher. He uh, was also a politician, uh, very rich. He died in 1951 when he was 88 years old. But according to Life magazine, when he was 75 years old, he forbid the mention of death in his presence. However, when yielding voting control of his publications to an attorney... Quote, the man who has arrogantly and brilliantly ruled a 200 million in 1938, that's about 2.2 billion today, that amount of empire acknowledged death, although he did not mention him. Now the statement here merely read that Mr. Hurst had become conscious of the uncertainties of life. This is a man that was just consumed with the world. And wealth, wealth building. We're going to look this morning about life in general. Really, I think the key to Ecclesiastes is, is, is really uh, the search for ultimate satisfaction. And, the, and we're going to look at, first of all, out of chapter 2, this search that the writer goes through. We're going to look at the summary that he finds out through his search. And then we're going to look at the summation all S's. That doesn't always happen, but I was really excited, so I, just, I popped it in there. The search, the summary, and the summation, or the conclusion. All right, that's what we're going to look at. And the key for this morning, I want us to remember, we're going to repeat this throughout. Life is meant to be satisfied by God and God alone. Life is meant to be satisfied by God and God alone. In this book, we find the great king, I believe the writer is Solomon. I know some might not, but I truly believe that he was the writer. We see that he's seeking to answer really life's biggest question. Why are we here? Why do I exist? And this, this book, in this chapter specifically, spends time answering that question. And you know, even a little bit of chapter 1, that very last part of chapter 1, he seeks and begins that search. And he really searches through, through gaining knowledge and, and learning. But we're going to start here in chapter 2. And we're going to start with this search by looking at verses 1 through 3. We're going to see the search. He sought fulfillment in amusement. Look down in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. You're going to see that word often in this chapter. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what what good is there for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives? He seeks fulfillment in amusement. 
This is the opposite of, of seeking knowledge and musing. He's seeking amusement, not thinking, just enjoying pleasure. That elated feeling of being happy or amused by something. Now consider the fact that if, if indeed the writer is Solomon, he had the ability to get anything his heart desired. So he sought education and musing, but that didn't satisfy, then probably going to the opposite might. So here we see him searching for fulfillment in amusement. Now we say the word amusement, we think of one thing, at least I do anyway, maybe you don't, but I think of amusement parks, right? We don't live too far away from one of the greatest amusement parks ever built, right? Cedar Point, right? I remember going there as a kid. Uh, my parents were youth sponsors at our church, and I went as a little tyke. And um, I obviously couldn't ride the big roller coasters, so I would just ride all the ones that make you throw up. Um, they just go back and forth. And that was what I did. It was fun. Not the last part, but the first part was fun. <laughs> but then I would go as a teenager. And even then, in sixth and seventh grade, I was very short. So I still couldn't ride the roller coaster. I could ride like a couple, and I remember the first one I rode on was the mine ride. That was the first one. And really, that's boring to me now. It was a boring ride. Um, but I remember as a teenager just riding those roller coasters, having so much fun. I didn't get sick on those, by the way. Now as I'm an adult, I tend to get a little sick, but I still do it because it's fun. Why do we do that? Why do we go to amusement parks? Do we go there to think? No. We go for the rush, for the excitement. There's nothing better than, than hitting the top of the Magnum. At least that was, that's the one I can remember the most. Sitting in that front car and just kind of like looking down and not seeing anything because that track kind of goes behind it. It seems like it does. Like you go, where is it? It's there somewhere. And then, whew, you're off. Fantastic. I love it. I love the drops, right? That's my favorite. But we go there for that feeling of pleasure and mirth. It's that same feeling that an athlete gets right after winning the gold medal. It's a feeling that doesn't last forever. It's there for a moment. And I think of athletes, I think of one of the greatest athletes of all time. Now, I'm a Bulls fan, and it's not Michael Jordan, okay? I grew up as a Bulls fan, loved it. I don't believe he's one of the greatest athletes. I believe it's this guy right here, Michael Phelps, one of the greatest swimmers I say he is the greatest swimmer of all time. I was amazed the first time I saw him swim in the Olympics. I was on the edge of my seat. This guy can swim, or could. Obviously, he's older now and retired. What, what do we know about Michael Phelps? He won 28 medals in total. He holds the record for the most Olympic golds of all time, 23. He holds the record... Uh, for the most Olympic golds in an individual event, 13. And he holds the record for the most Olympic medals in an individual event, 16. Phenomenal. Long arms, long body. That guy can just move through the water. And he can eat. We're not going to go there, but crazy, crazy swimmer. Haven't seen anybody like him since. Amazing. But what do we know about Michael Phelps? Well, we know he began having depression spells after, even after his amazing six golds and two bronze medals in Athens in 2004. He started after that to have depression, bouts of depression. 
And then we know in reading facts about his life in 2014, and he's talked about it since. After his second DUI, he was quoted as saying this, I felt like I didn't want to be alive anymore. I felt for me that I was causing a lot of stress and issues for others, other people around me, so I thought the best thing for me to do was just leave. In fact, he even shut himself in a closet for a couple days. What, what happened? He was even quoted as saying about his life then, I could put up a happy face in public, but behind closed doors, I was having meltdowns that no one knew about. You look at him and think, wow, an athlete. He had the greatest amusement of all time, that great rush. And you could tell the excitement on his face during those races. In the medleys, when he was waiting for the other swimmers and cheering them on. What happened? He realized this kind of fulfillment doesn't last. It leaves you empty after. And we see the writer going on in verse 2. We notice that he talks about laughter and madness and pleasure. What does it accomplish? I love laughter. I love to laugh. I love to have fun. I love, I love laughing with my family. I love listening to good comedians. They're few and far between. But I love it. I love to laugh. I love to have fun. But it doesn't really last, does it? I mean, life hits, right? In fact, a lot, a lot of times, the most things that we remember when we're watching a movie or, or something of that kind is one that leaves you with a deep message. It's usually not comedies. Laughter is a good medicine, but often it, it, it does fade away as well. And we see, even see in verse 3 that he went to the chemical wine. He's very careful to say, but I kept my wisdom in, in, in this endeavor. And perhaps he's, he's talking about this because oftentimes people use that as an escape to mask some ends, unsatisfied longings of the soul. So he tried it all. He tried it all. We know that in, in, in verse 1, uh, he, he talks about trying it all. And behold, at the end of verse 1, it says it was futility. Other translations, it's a vapor. It's like a vapor that vanishes. It's gone in a moment. It has no substance. It doesn't last. You know, we all look for escapes in our life, don't we? Sometimes we have a tendency to do that. Whatever it might be. You know, playing video games, watching movies, listening to music, magazines, books, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, on and on and on it can go. Where we just search for a getaway with our life. We use things as an out. Some drown their sorrows in alcohol or drugs. But the writer here says, hey, I've been there, I've done that. And it doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. If satisfaction and fulfillment doesn't come from what I do to myself, whether... I amass this great knowledge as he talks about in chapter 1 or, or indulge in this laughter and other amusements, then maybe it'll come from another form, from what I can do in the world around me. So we see that he goes to seeking fulfillment from accomplishments in verses 4 through 6. From accomplishments, he says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted them. In them, all kinds of fruit trees. Now, I'm following this. I'm, I'm actually loving this. That'd be great. I love fruit. 
Verse 6, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. He sought fulfillment from his accomplishments. Can you imagine being an architect? Have the means to build anything your mind could think of? I mean, that'd be pretty amazing. I'm not an architect, and, and I can kind of imagine things, but I'm amazed sometimes of what people can build. But can you imagine having just all the wealth to be able to, to build anything that your heart desires? Well, that was Solomon. That was Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 7. It talks about the house of, of Solomon that he built. And I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But in 1 Kings chapter 7, you can write that down and I'll read a little bit of what Solomon built. And it's pretty crazy. Now Solomon was building, in, in, in chapter 7 and verse 1, was building his own house. It took him 13 years. And he finished all his house. He built the house, of the, uh, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50, and its height 30, and four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. You ever smell cedar? I mean, to me, I, I kind of like the smell of cedar. Some, some might not, but I do. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows, and window with opposite window in three ranks. All the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames, and, and window was opposite window in three ranks. I know some of the, there's a lot of windows there. It lets a lot of light in, right? Now, all this artistic, that's, that's the only term that's seen is artistic. It means it's catching the eye. Anything that's artistic will catch your eye, Right? It's not just plain. It has some sort of artistic work. Maybe it was carved into the cedar. I don't know. Because I wasn't there, obviously. But we know this was an amazing structure. He's talking about the Temple of Solomon, is what this is talking about. All the way down through verse 12, he talks about this Temple of Solomon. May the Hall, verse 6. Of pillars, its length was 50 cubits and its width 30. And the porch was in front of them, and the pillars and the threshold in front of them. Solomon's porch was well known as being spectacular. I mean, he knew how to build, he knew how to get what he, what he was looking for, and then he did it. We know he also built a, built a house for the daughter of Pharaoh and many other buildings. And we talked about verses 4 and 5 the vineyards and the garden. If you've ever visited a botanical garden, you know exactly what Solomon is saying when he's talking about these gardens. They're just beautiful. I can't even describe them half the time. So many different colors. And all of it is just God's creation, God's plant all around these gardens, these botanical gardens you can just visit. Amazing. Beautiful. That's what Solomon built. It's self-fulfillment. In these accomplishments. But did this satisfy? No. It didn't satisfy his fulfillment. So he went on to something else. He sought fulfillment in assets. Wealth building. Wealth building. Look in verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves. And I had home-born slaves. Also I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. 
I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. He began to gather other assets. Because of perhaps the, the gardens and all the things that he built, he needed people to take care of him. So he had servants. Of course, we know in those days, servants were a major sign of wealth. He paid for their life. And then his servants began having children who would grow up to, to also serve Solomon. So he was adding more to, to his, his company. We see in verse 8 that he gathered uh, monetary wealth, the silver and gold, Treasures of kings. These weren't just any treasures. These were treasures of kings and provinces, if you think about that. Usually when a king went to visit another king, he brought something with him of value that the other king that he's visiting wouldn't be able to get. And so Solomon amassed all of this wealth, all of this treasure. He had the best musicians. I think we have the best musicians, but... Solomon had the best musicians. Imagine that, right? Uh, they, didn't have, uh, you know, they, they didn't have Spotify or, or anything like that in those days, right? So if you wanted to hear a song, go to your musicians. Hey, can you play that song, please? And then they'd play it, right? That was his Spotify back in the day. He had the best musicians. Any song he wanted, he could hear. Now, no one had that. No one had that. He also enjoyed the pleasures of men. Many concubines. It was noted that he had over 700 wives. He built assets. But did he find ultimate satisfaction in all of that? No. He didn't. So what did he come to after amassing all of this, seeking fulfillment in amusement, seeking fulfillment in the accomplishments of life, seeking fulfillment in, in wealth building as assets? What was his conclusion? Well, we saw the search, and now let's look at the summary. In verses 9 through 11, we see this summary. I'm going to read all, verse, all of these verses, 9 through 11, and then we're going to talk about them, all right? Verse 9, he says, Then I became great and increased more, and all who preceded me in Jerusalem, my wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, in verse 10, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, here's this, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Oh, there you go. Now we can close. <laughs> no, there's, there's more. What does this mean? Well, you see Solomon, he's gone through the search. Now he's giving us, here's what I found. Here's the summary of all this. It's basically, he talked about his search. We've already seen all this, and now he just decides to summarize it real quick in a short little paragraph. But what does this mean? We see he became greater than all his predecessors. His wisdom still stood by him. We know that God gave him the title of the wisest man to ever live. He was wise beyond anybody. But he went through the search for fulfillment and satisfaction and found that none of it offered any hope of any kind. 
But he had this wisdom to make an understanding of it all. And I think that's the key, is in his wisdom to make an understanding of all this. That you know what? I mean, maybe he just said, this was stupid. (laughs) This was pretty dumb, what I just did. But I want you all to know how dumb this was. I mean, that's, that's kind of my understanding in, in a nutshell. If he's just saying, look, here's what happened. It's futile. It's vanity. Maybe he'd have been taken over completely by these things if he didn't have this great amount of wisdom. I don't know. I can only assume. But he came to the understanding that they cannot be the source of true fulfillment. We know he left no stone unturned. Verse 10, he says, I did it all. He left no stone unturned, but we know that, secondly, he says, it leads to limited fulfillment. He says, listen, my heart, uh, which verse was that? Verse 11, I think. Sorry, verse 11, I believe. Uh, Nope, verse 10. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased. My heart had some joy. I was excited. I I, I found some happiness. But it didn't last. He had joy for a moment. Why doesn't it last? Because in verse 11, he says it. It's all vanity. There's no profit in the end. I considered all my activities which I handed down, the labor which I exerted. Behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And this is the world we live in. Search for satisfaction everywhere. Our world is searching for satisfaction everywhere. Wherever they fill the void in their heart that God left there for a reason, the world is searching to fill that void in all of these areas we've talked about. Every single one. And they get it filled for just a moment. But we see the word vanity, futility, chasing after the wind. You know, a cold day like today, or even colder, you can go outside and you can you breathe in, and then when you exhale, what do you see? The breath, right? Does it stay there? Not long, right? It just disappears. It's there for a moment and gone. Have you ever tried to chase a piece of paper that's real important to you that you dropped when there's a high wind? <laughs> yeah, I'm not the only one, right? Yeah, what happens? Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Especially if it's a tiny piece of paper. You're like, I need that. And you're, you know, you know, you're trying to do the little stomp, right? Yeah? Yeah. Maybe it's just me that tries to do that. I try to get my kids to go. I'm too tired. <laughs> go. Chase it. Right? This is what Solomon's saying. All of these things we're searching for, if we're not searching for God, all these things, it's like chasing after the wind. And I use the piece of paper because you can't see the wind. Right? If you chase something that's blowing around in the wind, you'll have a hard time catching it. It's vanity. Other translations say it's like a vapor. It's here for a little while and disappears. That's what Solomon's saying. The summary of all this search, he's saying, basically, this was dumb. This was not wise. Futile. It's futile. So we've looked at the search, the summary, and now the summation, the conclusion. 
And we see here in verses 12 through 26 our conclusion. First couple verses, he uses an illustration of a wise or prudent man and a fool. And I, I love the fact that Pastor read that passage this morning about the foolish man building his house on the sand. It fits with this point. So remember what we read there as we read here in our text, starting in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Someone's saying, I did it all, so what can anyone else do except what I've done? That's what we call a rhetorical question, right? The answer is, no one can do anything that I've not already done. Except that, I guess Michael Phelps is going, so Solomon didn't do it. But anyway, you get it, right? It says in verse 13, And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. What, what does that mean? He uses this illustration of the two extremes. You have the wise man and you have the fool. And this is the conclusion. He, he looks down here at, what was that, verse 13, right? He says, wisdom is better than folly. Like, that's comparison with light excelling darkness. Like, wisdom is a little bit better. You know, when, when you're in the dark, you need some light. And the light makes the darkness disappear. So wisdom helps. But then he even goes on to say, that despite this, we see in verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool, fool walks in darkness, and yet I know one fate befalls them both. He says, you know what, though? You can be a wise man, you can be a foolish man, but there's one thing that's certain that, that follows both of those two people as they live their life on earth. And so we're going to look at this summary, this summation, sorry, this summation, in two ways. We're going to look at the worldly view of this summation. Uh, I thought I had... Well, there's all three points, so you write them down real quick as I talk about it. First of all, he says, we all die. Isn't that wonderful? Great conclusion. You go, duh. Yeah, we all die. Doesn't matter how wise you are, doesn't matter how foolish you are, in the end, you all die. Sometimes uh, the foolish might die a little sooner, depending on what they're foolish about, right? But we all die. We all die. One fate befalls them both. Solomon here is saying, the writer here is saying, what good is being extremely wise? Because you still die. That's a dark, dark theme, right? But that's the truth. It makes sense. And then he goes on to verse, uh, verse 15, Then I said to myself, as the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? That's what he's saying. Why have I been extremely wise? I'm still going to die. He says, this too is vanity. Being extremely wise is even vanity. Because what then? Right? What then? If you're just looking at it from a worldly standpoint, right? Uh, in the godly viewpoint out of it for right now, because that's where we're going to head. But just a worldly viewpoint of someone who looks at the world and says, if you're a wise person or you're a foolish person, I mean, in the end, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. We all die. We all will someday die. What, is, what also does he say? In, in this, in verse 16, no one remembers you. Say, Whew, I'm feeling pretty bad about this. I know. Just follow me, okay? For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. 
inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. You notice those phrases being repeated throughout for a reason. No one remembers you. Now, I, 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 I automatically come up with the thought of, yes, I do! Right? I've lost loved ones. And I remember them. That's not Solomon's point when he says this. Because I know we've all lost loved ones. And we remember them. The point Solomon here is saying, future. In the future, how many years pass? He's saying, basically, the wise men and the fool, no matter how they live life, as they live, as far as lasting fame, the wise man is no better. They're both forgotten in the generations and generations and generations to come. Eventually, they're forgotten. And you can walk past their gravestone and see their name a thousand years later if it's still there. And somebody will go, who was that? Were they a fool or a wise person? I don't know. I don't even know. That's what Solomon's saying. The pleasure he took from all of his attempts, he, said, he comes to, to the point, I even hate, I have hate for this life. In verse 17. That word hate can also mean reject. And it makes sense in his attempt to find satisfaction in these areas. He says, I reject this. I hate that. It's crazy. It all evaporated like steam. Of course, we see the last point. You can't take it with you. Look at verses 18 through 22. You can't take what with you? I'm not talking about life. I'm taking, talking about all these things we've sought after. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, verse 18. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And no one knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. I've acted wisely under the sun, but you know what? When I die, all the stuff that I've acted wisely under the sun with isn't mine. It's the person after me. And is he going to be a fool or a wise person? Does that make sense? Therefore, now you notice it. Now it just keeps getting deeper in despair. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. In verse 20. In verse 21, when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what, verse 22, does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? In the end, he really gets nothing, Right? You can't take it with you. Have you ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? There you go, now you have. <laughs> I thought that too until I actually found a picture. I was like, okay, I guess it has happened. Um, but they, they can't take it with them. I don't know what's happening in this picture, to be honest. <laughs> but we laugh. Why do we laugh? Because we know how foolish that is. And I honestly, I do not believe that that is photoshopped in any way. It could be. I don't know. Maybe it is. I hope it's photoshopped. 
But we laugh. But I'm reminded of 1 Timothy 6-7 where it says, For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Wealth can't be taken with you. And we laugh, but you know what? They had this in Egypt, right? In Egypt, we have the pyramids. When excavated 4,000 years later, it was found, if thieves hadn't gotten in and stolen anything, it was found that everything is there in some of those pyramids, including the Pharaoh. King Tut, the most famous one, right? Amazing. Because they believed all of that, they could take with them. We laugh at this, but they had that. It's the same thing, right? The great preacher shares with us what we already know to be true. This is not anything that we look at and see. These three points, we all die. But no one, eventually, no one remembers you and you can't take it with you. We, we sitting here today can say, we, we know that that's, that's all true. But this is not the point we want to see. The labor of one who lives apart from God is filled with pain in the end. Labor is hard and intensive. A worker who works hard sweats and toils. But without God, what do you have for it? Nothing. Life is a king-sized frustration with worry and heartache, as we read here, without God. We even see that he has trouble sleeping at night. He can't even sleep at night because he thinks of all these things in his mind. What's going to happen with all my stuff? Working hard to the point of exhaustion to just build wealth for the sake of building wealth leaves you in the end the same as a foolish person, as a person who just sits on the couch, satisfied with just, I don't know, watching 24 hours of Bob Ross' Joy of Painting. There's no difference between the two in the end. But does it have to be that way? Worldly conclusion says... We look at life, it's sad, it's futile, it's empty. Here today, gone tomorrow. But I want us to look at the last part. The godly view, verses 24 through 26. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and have enjoyment without him, God? For to a person who is good in God's sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he, God, has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Puts us in their perspective. God's, folks, God has given us a gift. He truly has given us a gift. First of all, he gives us all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God has given us so much on this earth to enjoy. And it's not just trinkets, right? But we can enjoy those, sure. Just because you can enjoy it, though, it doesn't mean it's good for you, right? The things I've listed on things that people search for to find amusement, are those bad in and of themselves? I would say no. In moderation, I mean, you can look at movies and say there's some movies that are bad, but, right? 
All in all, though, moderation. If you spend all your time just playing video games, then yeah, we have a problem, right? If you spend all your time just reading books, then yeah, we have a problem, right? Spend all your time playing sports, working out, then yeah, we have a problem, right? But in moderation, are those things bad in and of themselves? I would say without God, yes. But the godly view says we must consider it with God in mind. Because God has given us all things to enjoy. And true satisfaction is found in God and in Him alone. We're here to glorify God. How can I bring glory to God? By obeying Him. By being obedient. Right? That brings glory to God. And by being Christ-like. How, how can I be Christ-like? I'm going to try to take this Old Testament very quickly in a few moments and turn from the Old Testament. As Pastor mentioned, Christ talks about this book often. And I found a passage in Mark. If you want to turn to Mark 8, we're going to leave Ecclesiastes and turn to Mark chapter 8. Because in this, I believe Jesus talks about this very thing. Searching after riches of life, the worldly things of life versus following Christ. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus, as you're turning there, Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And here I believe in Mark chapter 8, Jesus really tells us, tells the disciples, and through that tells us, tells the crowd that's there. What does that mean to follow him? We, we read in Mark 8, uh, 31, he begins to teach that the Son of Man must suffer and many things and be rejected by the elders and be killed and after three days rise again. So we see that he's begun with that. And in verse 34, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Follow me, Jesus says. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is Christ, I believe, talking about this very thing. Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to follow the world? Are you going to deny, deny yourself? Are you going to take up the cross and suffering? Follow me. If you wish to save your own life by seeking the fulfillment of riches and pleasure, it's going to bring you temporary satisfaction. And ultimately, as we read here, in the whole world, or rather you own everything, lose your soul. But suppose we take the other side of that coin. And you consider the worth of Jesus and the joy that you can have in Him. You have to turn to Him as your Lord, as Lord of your life, and give Him everything and follow Him. That means accepting Christ as Savior. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all sinned in one way, shape, or form. And because of that, we stand before God, who is a righteous judge who's holy, 
means he can't look on sin. He can't be around sin. Sin cannot enter heaven. Sin cannot be around God. That's what being holy is. He's holy, set apart from sin, pure. He's holy and just. Because of his justice, that means he can't overlook sin. He can't just let you into heaven. He can't just look and say, okay, well, I mean, you stole that one thing back a few years ago, and eh, you lied to your parents a few times, but sure, why don't you come on in? Come to heaven. He can't do that because of his justice. He's just. That means he does and always does what's right. So we stand before him sinners, guilty. Don't forget his love. (laughs) He provided a way because of his love that satisfies his holiness, that satisfies his justice by sending Jesus as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I am not righteous. Jesus was righteous. And God in his love provided a way to satisfy his holiness and his justice by sending Jesus the perfect one to die on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Not his, my sin. And as he died on that cross we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21 so that we could become the righteousness of God. God took my sin and placed it on Jesus as my substitute. That's God's love. Because he's holy, he can't be around sin. Because he's just, he has to deal with sin. But he chose to deal it on his own son, on the cross. And we read in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God. That's God's love, but because of his grace... He wants to forgive you of your sin. So he offers salvation through Christ as a free gift to you. And all you have to do is receive it. Ephesians 3 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. It's not of doing all of these things and checking all the boxes. It's not of works. Why? So that we don't boast about what we've done to get that. Because all the glory goes to God. So God, in his love and grace, provided Jesus as a substitute. And when he hung on that cross, he died for my sin. My sin was placed upon him. And when I receive the free gift, God exchanges Christ's righteousness and my sin. Now I am righteous. Counted righteous in God's eyes. But it's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that God sees. It's been explained to me this way. It's my spiritual spacesuit that I can wear to heaven. The righteousness of Christ. 
Nothing I deserve to get it. It's a free gift. You have to choose. So we have these two selves. In Mark 8, one chooses the things of this world and all its pleasure and all its satisfaction that it brings. Jesus is saying, if you're ashamed of me, then you haven't accepted me. You're not following me. If you want the world's approval, then you're ashamed of me. If you want the world's satisfaction, then you're ashamed of me. But he says, follow me. Give up this worldly life. And live for me. Choose suffering. Doesn't seem to be happy when we talk about suffering, does it? But that's what being a Christian means. We may suffer for his sake. But we must choose to follow Christ. Because then all of this makes sense. Because then our true satisfaction is found in God alone because I know I'm going to heaven. And that's something I don't deserve. And I find joy in Christ every day. We start out the morning looking at William Randolph Hearst. And I want to close looking at another great missionary. Uh, I'm going to skip the C.S. Lewis quote because I just don't have True satisfaction is found in God alone. There's nothing more true in this than the life of Jim Elliot. We know the life of Jim Elliot. Hang on, I'm, I'm going to skip back. I want us to think about what your legacy is going to be. William Randolph Hearst, rich guy. I mean, you might be here, you have no idea who that is anymore. Some of you might know him, have heard of him. Some of you... I don't know who that is before you show the picture. In any case, what's your legacy going to be? He died with everything, but he couldn't take it with him. But when we talk about Jim Elliott, he was a part of a five-man to reach the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And they made many attempts to try to reach these, these people from their airplane. Finally, one day, they decided to land. It was on that day that they were killed, all five. And I, I want us to take a look at this quote that his wife put in the book, The Shadow of the Almighty, when it's talking about Jim Elliot's life. It says, when he died, Jim left little of value, as the world regards value. He and I had agreed long before that we wanted no insurance. We would store out goods in heaven and share what the Lord gave us as long as and trust him literally for the future. So of material things, there were few. A home in the jungle, a few well-worn clothes, books, and tools. The men who went to try to rescue the five brought back to me from Jim's body his wristwatch, sand from the Curare Beach, and the blurred pages of his college prayer notebook. No funeral, no tombstone. Or memorial. The news reports of the five wooden crosses set up on the sand were not true. His man gave his life for Christ. He's a follower of Christ. And if you know the story, you know that this village was reached eventually. Was it worth it? 
Didn't the failure say yes? It was. One of his other quotes, sorry, a couple ices. One of his other quotes was found in that college prayer notebook. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What is your legacy this morning? Are you seeking after the pleasures of this world? If you are, you realize this morning that's futile. It's going to lead you nowhere. It's down a road that will end eventually in death and no hope. Are you here this morning already having chosen God as the ultimate satisfier of life? You know, the passage in Ecclesiastes just leaves us with, this is a vanity, right? Chapter 2 just ends with that. But I want to encourage you, all throughout Ecclesiastes, he's leading to the end where he comes with this summation, with this conclusion that I've shared this morning. Life is meant to be satisfied by God and God alone. The other things of this life you can enjoy richly because God has given us life to enjoy. And I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? We don't have to follow Jesus and then be bored the rest of our life, right? There's joy in Jesus, but we can, we can find joy going to amusement park. We can find joy, you know, playing a game with the kids and family. We can find joy in doing many things. But if you forget to find satisfaction in God and God alone, all of that is vanity. It's futile. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not chosen to be a follower of Christ. I want to plead with you today to give your life to Christ. Seek Him and Him alone for salvation. And you'll really know what joy, true joy, is all about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. To thank you that we can see the search for ultimate satisfaction is not found in amusement. It's, it's not uh, found in our accomplishments. It's not found in in building wealth. But Father, it's found in you and you alone. All of these other things are empty, worthless. Compared to you, they mean absolutely nothing. But Father, we've seen that if we but choose to be followers of Christ and seek to find joy in you and in you alone, we will find ultimate satisfaction. Father, we'll find something that the people of this world continue to search for and never find their entire lives. God, may you instill within us a strong desire to seek you and you alone for all things, that we might find our satisfaction in you. If there's one here this morning that doesn't know you, may they come to know you this morning. We pray these things in your son's name.